happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 192 for September the 30th, 2020. My name is Wes Fryer, and I am the Technology Integration and Innovation Specialist at the Cassidy School here in Oklahoma City, where I think we had one of the more astounding sunsets I've ever seen, thanks probably to all these fires that are happening in the western part of our country, uh, and then this amazing full moon rising. Uh, but thankfully, we're not here to discuss celestial events. I am joined by the expert in ed tech from the land of Montana and beautiful mountains. It's Dr. Jason Neifer. How are you, Jason, tonight? Good evening, Wes. I'm doing well, and um, I am going to join you from lovely Missoula, Montana, where the air is a little tiny bit smoky. We're hoping that uh, I read some news that Seattle is expecting some more smoke from West Coast fires, which will make it our way, but otherwise it's been nice and clear uh, the last couple of days. Um, I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the fabulous University of Montana campus here in Missoula. And I'm really excited because I just ended two days of really great collaboration with my colleagues from other state virtual schools. I attended the Virtual Learning Leadership Alliance Fall Conference. Um, it is actually the second edition of the fall conference. Last year, it was in Michigan. This year, it was supposed to move to Boise, Idaho, but unfortunately, uh, larger global events got in the way, so we did a virtual conference. And I have to say, on the odd chance that uh, members of the Alliance listened to the podcast, it was an extremely well-done event, and I felt like it was a really wonderful, organized, uh, based in both Schoology and Zoom event uh, that we were able to share um, you know, in, in for interesting bits of information with our colleagues um, from around the Alliance. And so um, I'm feeling uh, professionally refreshed a little bit and knowing that my colleagues are, um, you know, facing some of the same interesting quandaries and challenges in their state virtual schools. But Wes, it's my understanding this podcast isn't about the event I went to the last two days. What is EdTech Situation Room about? Well, there's the official what it's about and then what we, you know, also talk about. It's the bonus topics. But the official meat of this very hearty podcast is talking about the past week's technology news through an educational lens. So you can head over to edtechsr.com slash links where you'll find our Google Doc where we have a large number of links from articles that have generally been in the past week. There may be a few older ones there. And we will discuss as many of those as we can, trying to remain intelligible and not speaking too fast, as former debaters are prone to do. So <laughs> what are our topics tonight, Jason, that we can choose from? Well, um, I we, we've been doing a little bit of update each week on COVID, and I have one more article I want to share. So COVID, uh, digital equity, Microsoft, Google, Chrome OS, Amazon, the tech correction, a special feature here on the Dex Situation Room Security, AI, and then the uh, potent portables of our show, which is known as miscellaneous. Excellent. Well, you want to start off with that COVID article? I think we ended up talking about COVID perhaps last time. or uh, And we're coming up with show titles, so Jason, I should definitely, you know, uh, if you if you want to, uh, you know, you're you're struck by the uh, lightning bolt of enlightenment uh, and know what the show title should be. Last week, I I titled it COVID-19 and our new educational normal, because I think we may have talked about that for about half the show. But yep. we are in the midst of a global pandemic and it is kind of a big deal. So can I ask you one quick question about the conference, though, before we dive in? Yeah, please do. How do you compare the interaction that you all did on the, the platforms for this virtual conference to the Mountain Moot? Because I, I was there for the Mountain Moot and experienced that. It's an excellent question. Um, it was similar in that most of the folks that attended knew each other already. And so there was already quite a bit of community built. And so uh, the Virtual Learning Leadership Alliance, which used to be known as the Virtual State Virtual School Leadership. It's had a couple of different names, but it's a 10-year-old organization. And so um, my boss, Bob Curry, the executive director of MTDA, was part of the founding group that discussed between state virtual schools having an organization that can work on advocacy and, and issues that impact all of state virtual schools. And so, um, you know, I've been from day one in my role as the curriculum director of Montana State Virtual School, have been a, a member of a committee 
I chaired the curriculum directors committee for several years. They meet monthly. And I have to say that that's a big part of this. I knew a lot of the folks involved. I got to meet a lot of new people, but the people involved in the conference largely knew each other. I think it's probably 120, 130, maybe 150 in attendance uh, between the 15 state virtual schools. But I do think that makes a difference. And I am going to have an opportunity next week. I'm going to attend at least a couple of days of the U.S. Moot, uh, Moodle Moot, which is the uh, U.S. conference uh, for Moodle users. Uh, MTDA is a longtime Moodle user, and I myself have been using Moodle in some way, shape, or form since 2004. I will be interested. I know some of the folks in that community, and in fact, some of the same people that were at Mountain Moot, the smaller Moot in July, like Ryan Hazen, the instructional uh, technologist at Carroll College, he will be there and presenting. Um, but it will be a different group because I don't know all the Moodle peoples, uh, nationwide, worldwide Moodle people. So I think that will be an interesting means of comparison for me. That tool we used in the Mountain Moot, which was the, at the tables where you could get it and there were maybe, you know, five or six people. Yeah. Did you guys use that as well? Again? We did not. No. And in fact, I had forgotten about that. That was a really interesting tool. That was a neat tool. And that's what I've been thinking about ed camps and possible virtual ed camps and things. So. Anyway, we may have to continue that dialogue because I don't know if anybody – I don't know who's trying to do ed camps online, but that, that was a tool that I thought, that's, that's pretty neat that, you know, anyway, yeah. it would, as, as an element to toss in there. All right. Well, please take us to our COVID article to start off tonight. Sure. Great article from Politico. This is from uh, September 25th. This is Here's How the Pandemic Finally Ends from Elizabeth Ralph, who is the deputy editor of the Politico magazine. And the reason why I wanted to mention this is because it, it again, is starting to build a case based on science that this is not going to end overnight. And she goes through several details about how even if there is a vaccine soon, the vaccine will still need efficacy work. Once we start to distribute it, there will need to be time afterwards to make sure that there isn't an issue with a larger administration of it. It's likely to have multiple uh, uh, shots required. So two is the number I've seen in a number of articles. And even then, the risk to people is not going to go down. And in fact, we will not reach the much talked about herd immunity, uh, probably uh, uh, maybe ever, but at least to a point to where it's effective in the United States for, for, for a matter of not months, but years. And the reason why that's important, it's it, another fact that was talked about in the article, we're probably never going to get rid of COVID-19. In fact, we've been only successful eradicating two viruses in the history of humanity, right? So COVID-19 will always be an issue. But if we can get widespread inoculation, it becomes manageable, which is the key piece here. And then it repeats the science to say that social distancing and masks are both very effective strategies against COVID-19. And I mention this not because I want to dwell on it. It's just that I, I think there's a lot, because of the stressfulness of the situation, because of the shocking amount that's being asked of teachers, paraprofessionals, counselors, administrators, uh, maintenance folks, bus drivers, everyone's involved here in some way, shape, or form. I want to make sure that we all are cognizant that whatever emergency situation is going on right now is, is, is a long haul situation, right? I'm not saying schools will need or have to close for long term. I'm not saying we have to go to distance learning long term. That's, that's not, it's not in the cards. We don't know what the future is going to hold, but we have to be seeing a long game here because I think this is going to take a while. And that article jives with something that an infectious disease expert that uh, someone in our family, you know, visited with recently who was uh, saying, you know, from their vantage point, uh, 2022, you know, I mean, it's, it's not going to be a 2021, it's all gone kind of thing. And when we think about schools and how that's going to be impacting us, you know, very likely we're going to be doing more learning at home. And, you know, it's, we've, we've talked about this repeatedly as far as how things may never be the same in many aspects of work and learning. And so I think it is reasonable to expect parental expectations to change as well as, uh, you know, the, just the expectations that, that communities have for schools. So it, uh, 
yeah, it's gonna gonna be here a while. So it's a great time to have digital skills, folks. But that also means for the marathon, we've we've got we've, this has been an, an ongoing existing challenge pre-COVID. But the importance of building robust, vibrant, and supportive learning communities, both within our organizations and across our organizations, the role of groups like. Uh, NECC, um, the group that you were talking about, Jason, for your uh, distance learning organization uh, for virtual schools, um, you know, ed camps, there's so many different ways. And so we just, I believe, need to bring more teachers into the fold. And we really, we really need to focus on intentionally building these communities and finding ways to regularly do professional development and to move beyond what, unfortunately, a number of schools are still stuck in, which is really a sit and get model of professional development that, you know, sprays and prays at the beginning of, of the year and maybe a couple scattered holidays. But that just that just doesn't cut it. So we need to recognize the long term um, nature of this and respond accordingly with professional development. And of course, you know, Jason and I are up for hire. So that is a serving. <laughs> right. I could be in your Zoom meeting tomorrow. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, Peggy is tossing into the chat, the Microsoft uh, Seeing AI app, which I uh, may have an update. So we'll check out the link. She put a, a link in here and, uh, I remember a couple of years ago, you know, seeing that where there's just pretty amazing capabilities of of what what the device can see and and, and you know tell you and, and provide you with regard to information. So thank you for that, Peggy. Where should we go to next, Doctor Knifer? Do you have a preference? I do. Yeah, the, an article we carried over from last week that's so good. I want to make sure that we talk about it this week. Uh, the Hill on September twentieth reported a really excellent opinion article from Marta Talado, who is the CEO and president of Consumer Reports. So this is someone that is obviously very much a consumer advocate, right? And she writes that uh, the Consumer Reports organization working from home. And she needed to, uh, you know, obviously be in a, in a position to have solid broadband. And she tells the story of, uh, of the, the neighbors in her county that were trying to get better internet access to their neighborhood. And she talks a lot about the, uh, the talking to providers and that she was in a rural dirt road that, uh, or at the end of a rural dirt road and the neighbors would have to pitch in $48,000 to dig a trench and lay the cable because the provider wouldn't do that. They had already established what they would inside the neighborhood. Uh, this article uh, struck a chord with me for a number of reasons. The first one is that uh, we have to be really careful with the word rule, right? Because if rule means that you're relatively off the main drag, but you still have a number of neighbors that you could pitch in to get, in this case, they, they hired a private contractor. It took uh, uh, closer to $10,000 than $50,000. But the fact that you have neighbors that could pitch together, that it would make economic sense um, to hire someone to, to, to drop what I'm assuming some kind of fiber optic cable, it's different rule than rule is in a lot of other parts of the nation. We have an incredible divide between those that have broadband access and those that don't. And even further, I do think, and she does mention urban areas that are underserved, there are a lot of areas that have one provider, sometimes two providers that provide broadband, but it, the saturation isn't enough. The lack of competition means it's more expensive than it should be, or it's slower than it should be. And, you know, people suffer because of that. And what's really interesting about this is that, that Marta goes into some detail about the implications of this. And that's the part of the article that I wanted to, to most mention that in her words, uh, not having internet access can have uh, severe consequences. It may mean the difference between getting or losing a job, missing out on critical school time, or even worse. Um, I do not believe that we are headed towards an entirely information economy in the United States. We will always have people that do jobs that uh, can't be done from behind a desk. But make no mistake, a lot of jobs are done behind desks. And a lot of the information economy, including what from my perception is a lot of people in education needs to be done from home. And the bottom line is, is that our infrastructure problem uh, uh, as it relates to broadband is very much uh, uh, an issue here in 2020. I added a, a link to the show notes that is from the wall street journal on September 17th. And the article 
is titled Pandemic Broadband Speeds Are Faster But Insufficient for Some. And so there are a couple things to note from this article. Um, number one, the average speed for broadband and the F- FTC or FCC, it's SCF, yeah, Federal, Federal Communications Commission, FCC, considers 25 megabits per second, the minimum for broadband. Um, the average across the United States was in March of 2020, uh, 84.9 megabits, and it's uh, in July up to 94.6 megabits. The uh, states, it says that uh, notch the biggest increases were Wyoming, Alaska, and Kentucky, and there were declines in some states like Virginia, Hawaii, Del- and Delaware. The biggest thing I take from this article is it was state level investment in fiber optic backbones that really made the difference. And we are not a political show, but we talk about things that touch on politics all the time. And I will say that the investments that we need to have, the intelligent investments, because we've had actually, I think, some boondoggle investments here in Oklahoma that I am not fully aware of. But when I was working for AT&T for a couple of years and, um, you know, visiting with uh, with school officials and other people, um, you know, some things that were privatized and really maybe not leveraged in the way that they could. Government investment makes a huge difference. Look at the United States interstate system. In the same way that trucking and the supply chain relies upon interstate travel, which was built by taxpayer dollars, and for the most part, except for some, you know, turnpikes, and those are have been growing in frequency in, in, in different cities. I don't know if that is happening up in, in your neck of the woods, but it definitely, you know, has in Texas and, and, and here in Oklahoma and parts. But these are essential, and we need the same kind of investment uh, from the federal government. We see that happening, you know, in, in other countries. Obviously, we have geographic challenges here in the United States that perhaps, that not perhaps, definitely, you know, countries like Japan, Europe, the countries of Europe, I mean, you know, it's, we're, we're a massive state with lots and lots of wide open spaces, but, um, I mean, I'm encouraged that that average rate went up, uh, but the article that you raised or shared, Jason, you know, definitely points out it's just, a, it's a, it's a widely variable, um, you know, situation with respect, with respect to broadband. So I'm encouraged by Starlink and SpaceX and, and Elon Musk, as well as other companies, which are putting these low, uh, low earth orbit satellites in, in orbit. Uh, we are, you know, heading toward 5G, perhaps, you know, the seismic split between the internet with, with China and the West and, and all of that. Uh, we're going to have faster access to the internet, but it's not, and, and, and perhaps these satellite providers are going to be one of the biggest ways that the most rural of customers, you know, end up getting that kind of access. But for the foreseeable future, I mean, and this is just part of how we, sometimes we end up like growing up, like you've got to, you know, got to have that, uh, that fiber in the ground. I mean, it, you know, cell, cell towers too, right? How, how does 5G or 4G or anything, you know, get delivered? It, it takes fiber to a cell tower that, you know, is then connecting out wirelessly to customers. So I am in favor of greater levels of infrastructure investment in the United States. And I think that COVID and all the stresses that we continue to have just emphasize that importance. And it's every bit as important as our physical highways and, and interstate system that connect our our wonderful states together agreed and the other thing i would also say broadband is 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 basic infrastructure it is water it is power and we just don't have any options anymore but to make sure that every single american has access absolutely okay where to next all right. Well, I'd like to go down to the miscellaneous column if I could. I'm not sure where else to put this. And this is a this is a pretty troubling article um, that talks about again issues raised by the pandemic, but um, issues about surveillance. And so this is from Vice on September 24th, and the headline is: Students are rebelling against eye tracking exam surveillance tools. I am more aware of this for a couple reasons. Uh, we have one of our three children, now a college graduate, but we have uh, a daughter who's an 11th grader in high school, and then we have another one who is a sophomore in college. And the sophomore has been using all kinds of, you know, exam tools that are watching her when she is taking her exam. And as we've talked about on the show, and you may have heard about from artificial intelligence, you know, studies, 
these technologies that are watching us and using facial recognition and um, other and that a lot facial recognition, but other kinds of biometrics, they do not treat all folks equally, depending on the color of your skin, depending upon other things with your complexion, uh, depending upon different factors. The systems rely upon data sets that they are fed and they learn from. Uh, but there's some, you know, just crazily troubling uh, stories, you know, in this article, uh, there's a story of a, um, of a, of a student who, uh, says that he had tried, I think, 70 something times to be able to use facial recognition to log in and just kept on being rejected and it was in too dark. But the thing that's even perhaps more troubling is some students have spoken out about this and they have faced direct, uh, direct, um, oh gosh, I'm gonna have the senior moment because I'm 50 now. Um, Consequences isn't the right word. Companies, Proctorio is one of them, that has directly banned the IP addresses of students who have spoken out, demanded that students take down their complaints on social media, and very aggressively attempted to silence students who have every right in, you know, our country to speak out and to be able to, you know, say whether they think something is, is unjust or not fair. And these companies are taking direct punitive action against students who are speaking out freely. Freaking ridiculous. And we have had some conversations at our school about some of these kinds of tools. Um, there's a statistic in that article that talks about, anyway, somebody who's estimating like 70% of all kids are going to cheat or something. Who knows where the heck that number comes from? There's no kind of citation. Um, and also on the topic of citations, at the bottom of the article, it notes that um, there are very few, um, you know, uh, peer-reviewed uh, articles, you know, looking looking at these kinds of things. And um, it's it's just a big issue. So, Jason, let me ask you from the Montana uh, Digital Academy's perspective, have you all used some of these technologies and do you have both professional you know, at work uh, perspectives on this or personal views in terms of these these tools that are surveilling students Be because, and I'll, I'll do one, one more thing. Um, and I think I just tweeted this quote. The, the, these, these kinds of tools are looking for abnormalities. So quote, if a student looks away from the screen more than their peers taking the same exam, they are flagged for an abnormality. If they look away less often, they are flagged away for an abnormality. The same goes for how many keystrokes a student makes while answering a question, how many times they click, a variety of other metrics, variation outside the standard deviation raises a flag. Well, I guess full disclosure, uh, we use Proctorio and MTDA. So, um, and it's, it's not, it's for one very narrow part of our program. It's a final exam in a credit recovery course that is mastery learning based. And so the fact that the exam is offered multiple times, uh, means that we have to have some kind of proctoring environment to do that. Um, it's interesting because I hadn't heard the stuff about the banning IP addresses based on student criticism. That, that's really interesting and something that, that's new to me. The thing I would say is that, Part of the problem in, or part of the problem I think that COVID highlights, right? Suddenly when we have vast parts of our education that can't be in the same physical space, it's about how much of our academic legitimacy is based on, um, uh, based on traditional exams in the environment. And I want to be really clear. I don't think that objective exams are completely devoid of value, but I think that there needs to be a better, um, a better attempt at finding ways to measure student knowledge that go beyond objective exams. Now that said, like I do think there is an issue in that there are plenty of, I think, legitimate uses of those types of exams. They just become more impossible inside of um, uh, you know, distance learning environments. And I don't exactly know what that means. I I'll tell you it is a, um, uh, uh, one of the, the challenging things about, uh, I think about putting together learning environments that really, um, that really are measuring students is that it takes longer and it's more labor intensive to do so. And that's part of the problem, I think, 
with some of the the discussions about evolving uh, 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 assessment to beyond more objective things. The reason why objective tests are popular inside of classrooms is because they're easy to grade and they're quick, right? That you can write object, objective questions that measure actually relatively high level thinking. It's not impossible to do so. In fact, there's plenty of, well, a hundred years of, of research behind writing good multiple choice questions that do measure higher uh, word level thinking. I'm not saying the vast majority of, of questions in the typical exam are doing that. The Bottom line is, is that um, um, I, this is a conversation we need to have more broadly. That said, like, I feel good about the fact that we are not relying on a logarithm to make those judgments. And in fact, we staff review those videos as opposed to leaving it to a computer to do that. It's our internal staff that does that. Um, there's been no anomalies we've spotted that were concerning. Um, and in fact, uh, students reported back to us that it was less than they perceived based on the hype that they've heard earlier this year about, about those pieces. But these are tools that are being used. Um, and I think that it sparks a larger discussion about learning, sparks a larger discussion about assessment. And I think my uh, reflection on it is that we need to have chances to discuss the ethics of these things and the the various dimensions of these things, because, you know, this 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 year very much uh, feels like a survival year in many respects in terms of teaching and the demands that are on teachers, the expectations on parents, on students, on everyone. And with some things, we are kind of perhaps, hey, can I have a tool? Hey, can I have a solution for this? Um, you know, and it's a bit ideal to think about sort of, you know, sitting back with a cup of coffee or tea and being able to, you know, ponder the ethics of uh, educational technologies. But like, I actually think we need to do that. And if you're not having an opportunity to do that within your organization, uh, maybe you need some kind of a, of a forum or format to do that because, I, you know, the, the march of surveillance technology, and we mentioned in the show last week, this documentary, The Social Dilemma, which aired uh, for the first time on Netflix. It really is fantastic. We're going to be able to have a parent university session. We just got approval to move forward with that after our fall break, probably in early November, to have some roundtable discussions virtually with parents about that. But a lot, a lot of that has to do with artificial intelligence, which we'll talk a little bit more about in the show tonight, but surveillance and these roles and, you know, we have corporate surveillance, we have we have government surveillance, we have school surveillance, and it is a part of our lives, but we don't necessarily have to rush out and adopt, you know, every technology and the latest thing. And we need to attend to the ways in which different groups are potentially impacted uh, in an inequitable way by these technologies. And, you know, we just need to have conversations about it. So I guess that's just... My uh, my plea is to is to say let's let's find ways to talk about these things uh, rather than just you know learning about them when hey guess what you know the latest tool and to your point Jason I'm sure I think there's definitely various contexts and and for a lot of these kinds of tools I mean there are good uses for them uh, but surveillance tools and really just I would say IT tools in general have a tremendous capacity for over control and for abuse. And we see that happening in the way that, for instance, China with, with the Great Firewall and the kinds of censorship and the things that they're doing. Uh, we've even seen it with school districts. You know, I've been in plenty of school districts and, and there's been an, a few years and I throw water under the bridge, you know, since some of this, but where, you know, all third party email was blocked. And it was like, why are you doing this? And, you know, so these tools that, that uh, those who are in control have, uh, are giving vast power, you know, to those individuals. So important, important for us to have conversations about that. Right. I want to add one last note to this too. Part of it is, is, and, and, and I'm not trying to defend the surveillance nature of this, but things happen awfully quickly and a lot of learning environments are not able to adapt because of staffing or availability of other resources to move that quickly. My guess is, is the longer distance learning is used as a primary way of delivering education. We're going to have to figure out new ways to, to build assessments that are more flexible that don't require this kind of tech.
Yeah. Hey, and it's an opportunity to show what you know with media, right? There's other ways to assess, and we need to be thinking about all those kinds of alternative assessments, which generally do take more time, are harder, um, but in many cases can be more authentic, uh, you know, stickier and, you know, um, certainly good to supplement with some of our traditional kinds of assessments. So good tools to, or good, good, good things to think about as we consider the ways in which all of us need to be, uh, you know, if not retooling, you know, improving the tools and the, and the instructional strategies with which we are engaging students, whether we are in a blended remote or fully face-to-face -face right. situation. Absolutely. All right. I heard there was some Google stuff and I heard some really exciting Google meet news that I'm just thrilled to get to learn more about tonight. Do you want to do any of that? Sure. Yeah. Let's do the Google stuff. And then I've also got some random Chrome OS news to share. Um, the first one is that um, there was a, a Google Pixel event today and uh, Google releases hardware a couple of times a year. Um, there was some suspicion that there was going to be a new Chromebook, Google Chromebook released today, but that's likely to be later in the year if it happens at all. But they had a, about a half an hour hardware event today. Great article, summary article from The Verge. A couple different things. The first one, the Google Pixel 5. So the Pixel is the Google phone made by Google. It doesn't just run Google Android. It additionally is built by Google, so designed and built by Google. So this is roughly equivalent to the iPhone running iOS. This is Google's answer to that. This is the fifth edition of this phone, and it's interesting because the way a lot of media sources have spun this is that this is the pandemic phone, right? In part because it's cheaper. Um, it runs $699, available at the end of October. And while it does have 8 gigs of RAM, that is a, a high amount of, 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 of RAM for a smartphone, it runs a mid-range processor, which means that it's a flagship but it's not running the highest end Snapdragon processors. It also has a 90 hertz refresh rate on the screen, which is becoming more popular in Android, which gives a nice buttery smooth feel uh, with the screen itself. They've also released what they called uh, the, the, the A models. So 3A, 4A, these were cheaper mid-range, kind of their answer to the iPhone SE. Google has answered back with the 4A earlier this year, and now they've released a 5G version of that, which is fi just $500 to get the basic model of the, the 5G phone. I do, I have no idea where the new, the, uh, the closest 5G tower is at. My guess is Montana doesn't have any 5G towers. We're usually pretty late to the game. If there was a 5G tower in Missoula, I might consider buying something like that, but I'm not particularly interested. And then probably the biggest, uh, interesting, uh, hardware news. Uh, uh, from Google is the fact that they have a new Chromecast out. And we've talked about Chromecast a lot here in the past, but it's the same Chromecast as it always has been in that you can cast from your phone, right? You have video on a phone, tablet, laptop. You want to throw it up to a screen, but it integrates a piece of software called Google TV that used to be called Android TV. Now it's called Google TV that allows you to run uh, a selection of apps that uh, mean that you don't need to have a phone to be able to access it, and it also comes with a remote control. And then also, there is a new speaker out. I've read less about this. Instead of the Google Home uh, speaker and the Home Max, which was their huge speaker, they have something called a Nest audio that looks kind of looks like a big, big capsule, like big, uh, medicine capsule, uh, that, that is just $99 to start with. So I guess, Wes, I know that Google Home Minis have been a big part of the Fryer family, um, IoT devices. Anything tempting for you today in the Google announcements? I don't think so. We talked, uh, uh, you know, a few weeks ago about this change to the Chromecast and the idea of it being really responsive, you know, more like a Roku, I think, or, or an Apple TV, I guess has some appeal. But honestly, I'm, you know, we have two Chromecasts and I, I just love their ambient, um, you know, mode as far as having uh, images. And uh, I don't know if I've said this on the show, but uh, I, the, speaking of AI, you know, we made a, I made a smart photo album of our, of our immediate family and my parents. And there's like 3,500 pictures because I've been uploading photos to Google photos. And anyway, it's just, it's amazing. It's so cool what we're seeing. 
And it's really not that big of a deal when I want to watch something on Netflix or YouTube to just, you know, have my phone out and flip it up there. So I don't think there's enough um, to convince me to make the jump. And, um, you know, we're, we're very happy with our, with our uh, iOS ecosystem in terms of phones and those sorts of things. But this is going to be, um, you know, in terms of the phones, it, it, it's, it is kind of like the, you know, peak Moore's law or whatever. I mean, how much faster we do we need to get? I mean, it, it's, um, it's great to see, I think the cost of not only Android phones, but in the case of the SE line with Apple, you know, some less expensive devices that are coming out, but this will not be, uh, probably making me go to the store or, you know, ordering something online. I am pretty excited about, you know, some of the other announcements, but not really the hardware stuff. Okay, great. Um, Updates on Google Meets. Google Meet is getting two features, much requested features. One of them is a 50-person grid. Uh, uh, Android, I'm sorry, Chrome Unbox reports on September 16th. They called it a Zoom-like 50-person grid, which seems pretty legit. And the other thing that's very nice is that they will be doing uh, a blurred backgrounds, which I think is a very great feature for this. And I will say... Um, one of the reasons why I have been a little less likely to use my Chromebox at home uh, as a full-time machine is that I spend so much flipping time on video conference calls right now as part of my day job. And I'll be honest, um, you know, my office is, is not a disaster by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a working office. And so I've got piles of stuff that I'm working on. Um, I have a hardware table next to me um, that is, is currently full of some boxes that I need to uh, have stuff to go through and process, and I like the notion of having a blurred background. I also think that I've seen a lot of information from teachers that students feel more comfortable when they don't have to worry about the background of their home when they are on camera. Uh, there have been a lot of interesting articles. I was going to try to find one for tonight, but I didn't find one that was, uh, I, I guess, not panicked enough to, to talk about. But the ongoing question of whether you can force kids to have cameras on or not in their video conferencing calls uh, continues on. But the fact that there's blurred uh, uh, backgrounds available means that I could jump personally on my Chromebox and be okay. And, you know, like, obviously my, my office is, you know, decently organized, but I would prefer, you know, the beautiful background of my mountain home when I'm on calls. I'm super excited about the grid view and you can put yourself in the grid view as well. You've needed to have extensions to do those kind of things before. So that is fantastic. And then that other article about the attendance feature uh, has a couple caveats. The first one is that you do have to be an enterprise paying customer uh, for education. And this is actually huge. I don't know if we've talked about and made a big enough deal about this, but you know, until like now, uh, basically, you all of us who are using G Suite for education get everything. There, there wasn't any Google tool really in the in the arsenal or the toolbox that you know you didn't have potential access to that was either turned on by default or you could turn on. But with video conferencing and this update to Google Meet, you know, in order to record that, and that's a that's a big thing. We require our teachers to actually record all uh, virtual sessions that are being done. We're supposed to anyway, uh, or I think that's our policy. Um, you know, we've, we as a school have licensed because today's the day, this is September 30th. So everyone who's a G suite user has had, you know, the free level of, uh, uh, of Google meet and that functionality. So uh, the other caveat, in addition to needing to pay for the enterprise in order to have this attendance feature um, is that you are going to um, it's, it's been slowed down. They're analyzing the performance of it. So um, that art, that, that article, I, anyway, was that mid mid month? I think it was a, um, well, no, that was, it was yesterday, September 29th. The other one was, was like the 15th uh, or the the 16th. So anyway, that may not be showing up for you tomorrow, but it will show the duration, uh, who connected when, you know, how long they connected, um, those kinds of things. So good to see these updates coming from Google. Kind of unfortunate that they weren't able to roll them out sooner, but I guess that might speak to, you know, the technical challenges uh, that, that they have here. Um, the big other feature that I'm still waiting for, and a lot of us are waiting for, are breakout rooms. Um, yes. I think we will be using Zoom for our parent university uh, here in the next you know, month or so um, because we do want to use breakout rooms. We want to give 
parents that opportunity to be able to talk in small groups and students need that as well. And so there's some different kind of wonky workarounds and there are some extensions and ways to do it. Uh, but having that as a core feature and that's still coming this fall, uh, but it apparently is, is not here yet, but very glad to see these things coming from Google. What do you, what do you make of the, of the change with the fee structure and things like that, Jason, is that Google take an opportunity to kind of, cash in on COVID? Do you have any any insight or, or theories about that? Yeah, it's concerning to me from the standpoint that I mean, I, if they end up creating a free version that over time devolves into something that's just not worth it anymore, it makes it harder, I think, to adopt the platform, right? I mean, one of the benefits that, that I like about um, Google uh, uh, as, as the backing of, of our email in, in our program is that, you know, we have kids, the vast majority of our students don't use their Google uh, account with us because they either have a local school one or their district is a Microsoft 365 district and they end up using that instead. And whatever, we have to support both of them. That's that's a, a huge challenge that we face. But the fact that, you know, the, the, the basic system is functional enough to do just about everything, right, is a real benefit to me. And in part, I've moved over to Chromebook but more importantly, I've, I'm almost 100% on Google Suite tools now, including the productivity tools, because, um, you know, I want to support kids and also prove that you can do 100% of tech savvy work with those tools. And so I know a lot of nonprofits are struggling with this right now because some of the better features are ending up in the advanced tool set, which is a lot more expensive than free. Um, and also for schools, I know that it's just adult accounts that they're charging the enterprise for, which is definitely a benefit, but, um, it, I, you know, I would rather, um, I guess if I were Google, I'd rather have schools invest in infrastructure and bandwidth and hardware than I would investing in software costs. But I, I guess that's just me. I wonder how much of this just has to do with outright costs, right? Because yeah. certainly at the scale that Google operates, it's super expensive to do what they do. Uh, but giving somebody a free email account uh, and, a, and a specified number of gigabytes is really different than saying you can host and archive and share an unlimited amount of video data. So maybe this has to do with the size of the files and all that. I don't know. I don't have any insight into that, but if anybody listening to the show does, um, I, I'd be interested because it is, it's a significant thing. And I don't know if, if I was a cynic, which I'm really not about Google, uh, you could say that, yeah. you know, yes, this was the plan all along. We were going to get you to love the tools and then, you know, you're going to have to start paying. I really feel like video conferencing is part of the new normal and also the potential to record. And again, so some schools like ours may be requiring that. Um, so it's it's something that, you know, uh, we are so committed and, and uh, you know, f completely in with Google that um, it really wasn't a hard decision. And also with respect to cost, when you look at, you know, licensing Zoom for all users or whatever, uh, I think it was a pretty straightforward and easy decision to say we wanted to go with that Google enterprise level. Um, this is the first time we've been paying Google, uh, to my knowledge, you know, since we switched 10, 10, odd, 10 or so years or however far back it was, uh, might be, might have been more than a decade. So anyway, it's a sizable change and difference. Um, but, you know, good to see Google continuing to roll out these features. And one of the professional development, maybe I should put that in there. They had a great, you know, education in the cloud conference. And I have not yet caught. I've got these, the archive link um, to those. But, um, you know, Google is continuing to do great things for education. And the, the scale at which they have to operate probably would just blow all of our minds, you know, to imagine what they have to do with their data centers and the amount of servers and, and all of the folks that, you know, and cause they're not advertising to students, right? Google apps for education does not, you know, track students. It does not advertise to them. So there's not a revenue stream there. There's this hope on the part of, of Google that, you know, they're going to continue to use Google tools in the future. And, you know, Google's going to continue their, their market dominance in so many different areas, but it is, yep. it's pretty sizable. And I don't know that I've heard a podcast or anybody, you know, really uh, dive into that. And it would be, I would just be curious on a personal note to, to, to see if anybody has any insights into the reasons for that shift. Sure. And two other related notes to that. You mentioned the ubiquity of video conferencing, how critical that is. Just remember that 15 years ago, video conferencing was so absolutely valuable 
that people were spending twenty five, thirty, forty thousand dollars to bring equipment into their buildings to be able to do that. And now that's something you can pull off easily on a low end desktop computer. And then if you really want to become a Google cynic, I suppose you could say that advertising revenue is probably down for Google, that that's become trading on your personal data has become less valuable, I think, in the last five years than did before that. And I will say I value Google services enough that I probably would pay for them in a number of different contexts. And, you know, remember if, uh, you know, I, I do believe Google when they say they've got significant protections in place, right, for student data and also tracking students. But at the same time, um, you know, it, it is a, it is a, a data tracking business as it turns out. I think my wife upstairs must have just told our Google Home to turn off all the lights because that's why my <laughs> light actually just went off. I'm like, why did that just go off? Uh, and just to reflect a little on what you said about the the cost, you know, when I was the director of distance learning at Texas Tech University in the College of Education from 2001 to 2005 uh, or during 2006, I guess, um, I mean, we were paying, we had paid $75,000 for, I think, our first VTEL, you know, room, which was all, you know, connecting out to West Texas on T1 lines, but it was this dedicated hardware, which had originally been over phone lines and used the, you know, ISDN or whatever. We were in the transition to what's called H323, which is the IP based video conferencing. Um, I, you know, helped set up two additional rooms because we were doing more and more of, uh, live teaching out to, out, out to, out to folks. And that, you know, change from being, you had to go to your regional educational service center or, or to your school to, you could go ahead and do that for home. I'm trying to remember the name of the, the device that we bought, but it was this rack based device that had, you know, less than 10 seconds, maybe even five seconds of latency. And, uh, you know, that where we've come from, it, it's, it, you know, it's, it's a sizable difference. However, we're now, you know, in our context and other schools asking questions about, do we need to have some permanent equipment in some rooms, in all rooms? I, I have a friend at a Texas school who that's what they're doing. They're uh, connecting it, I think, to maybe Promethean boards, one of their smart boards, but, but putting an, an H323 capable high definition camera and system, you know, in each classroom. So they'll be able to have a high level of quality, fidelity, uh, and also audio quality, you know, to be able to uh, deliver the instruction from these different rooms and things like that. So it's pretty fascinating. And um, we are continuing, I think, to make that transition from the emergency remote learning season of March through May or June, depending on how long you went to school to... Yep this new normal. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of, lot of aspects to that. It's not just the licensing of the software. It's also the hardware that you're using. And, uh, if, if, uh, more teachers, you know, have to go remote, I think, I mean, one of my number one pieces of advice, Jason, was your geek of the week last week, which was two screens, right? What a huge, you know, difference that makes, but you know, the video processor you use, the, the, uh, tools that you have, the hardware you have, that all makes a difference as well. And then we come back to professional development. All right. What to next, sir? Let me just do a couple of quick uh, Chrome OS updates just because um, we didn't get to them last week and they'll be maybe a little too dated a week or so from now. There's a lot of great um, Amazon uh, stuff to talk about, but it can certainly wait until down the road. So uh, an article from About Chromebooks, uh, Kelvin Tofel on September 22nd is talking about HP is going to release a new enterprise Chromebook line with brand new AMD chips in it. The only reason why I mention this is because one of the chips in there is a monster of a mobile chip. AMD right now kicking Intel's butt on, on chip speed for the price. Um, and they, they have some very advanced chips, but one of the, um, I think it's called speed mark or pass mark or benchmark or something. There's a, a, a thing that I look up to get the general speed of a chip when I'm trying to compare one chip to another. Uh, my desktop computer right now, it's a five-year-old gaming machine. It's an HP Envy. The chip uh, runs 9,000 or so on the benchmark. The high-end chip that, uh, AMD chip that will be in one of these Chromebooks, 26,000 on that same benchmark, which is, you know, faster than this gaming machine, which runs Windows 10, um, kind of like a dream. I can't imagine that's going to be a cheap Chromebook. That sounds like a $1,500 Chromebook, not a $600 Chromebook, but I would very much want that. 
The bigger story, though, that I think is a really important one is about Chromebooks. So Kevin Tofel again reported on September 20th that you can now get in the dev channel of Chrome OS something called it, uh, Lacrosse, I think is what they're calling it, L-A-C-R-O-S. It's an interesting initiative which might give Chromebooks even a longer life than they do now. We've reported on the past here in the podcast that one of the things you have to watch out for for dirt cheap Chromebooks is that you don't buy one that doesn't have a very long support life because it used to be it used to be five years ish and then it became six years. I think it's seven or eight now. But in any case, Chromebooks don't last forever and don't get updates forever. And they're working on a new interesting prospect, which basically separates the browser away from Chrome OS, which means that you would continue to get browser updates even after the Chromebook itself is no longer getting operating system updates. And wow. so I took my trusty uh, HP uh, X360 Chromebook. It's, it's, uh, these are, uh, 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 a really great 14-inch uh, HD Chromebook with an i3 uh, chip in it, 8 gigs of RAM. I put it in uh, Chrome OS 87, the dev channel, and after a couple of updates and restarts, now I have two Chrome icons on the bottom uh, that are slightly different, and one of them is the separate Chrome browser. I think it's the Linux version of the Chrome browser. And so it might be, especially for your high-end Chromebooks, um, that, you know, you want to last for more than eight years, right? Like at certain, certain point things slow down, um, that you could use your Chromebook well past its expiration date, which I think is a fascinating, uh, development on Chromebooks. And then, um. The other thing in that article was exciting, uh, if I can add to that, yeah, was please. the nearby share. And that is yes. the airdrop, um, equivalent that Google has tried, I think, in a couple different iterations. So if that works well, I think that is a really big deal. Utilizing AirDrop to be able to share media, photos, video uh, readily between devices, it, it's a big thing. So I'm excited to see that. And have you played with that at all, Jason, yet? I've not. I did try it. I, I did get it set up the in, in the, the dev beta to just start it. And it's not quite, it's it's still pretty early days, but when it gets there, I, I will definitely use that. I mean, I will say one of the reasons why, even though I'm so tempted to get an Apple Watch uh, and, and maybe uh, run around with an iPhone for a while, is that Google's finally figuring out what Apple's known for 15 years, which is people are likely to stick in your ecosystem if everything just works together. And and I think having a Google phone and a Google tablet and a Google watch and a uh, Chrome OS device uh, all working together is likely to be an extraordinary powerhouse. Yeah. Okay. Sorry to interrupt you there. For no, quite all right. There. And I, let's, that, that's good on, on um, the Chrome OS update. So we have just a couple minutes left. Start a minute or two late. Where should we, or what should we do before we end up this week? Uh, let me throw in a couple AI articles. Um, artificial intelligence and understanding artificial intelligence and thinking about how that is impacting and will continue to impact our lives. One of the most important topics that we could possibly be talking about today. It is just a, a seismic change. I'm, I'm convinced. Um, MIT Tech Review, September 25th, has an article saying these weird unsettling photos show how AI is getting smarter. And so... For a lot of artificial intelligence uh, systems, you know, we've got facial recognition, so it's recognizing people, you know, doing patterns. And then there's some really pretty amazing uh, algorithms now that are able to write things and, like, write articles and, and be very convincing. And this is, of course, troubling and problematic when we think about the weaponization of social media and the ways in which these tools can be used to generate, you know, false, uh, false news, uh, misinformation, disinformation, <clears throat> those kinds of things. But this is a project where um, the AI algorithms are actually generating images and they're using captions to do that. And it says they're, they're getting better at understanding our world. So there are different AI models that are out there. Open AI has one that's called GPT-3. Uh, that's the one that has been, you know, uh, fooling people, uh, by it's the songs, the, the, the poems, the short stories that it writes that people are, the Turing test is like, can you tell it's a person basically, right? And so it's kind of, uh, spoiling that. So I think this is just kind of another sign of um, 
of how this works or, or you know just of the of the progress of of AI it's interesting because the training um they talk about these algorithms of of how they're they're doing that to basically have these systems learn i mean isn't that just incredible that that that's happening but it is and it's a it's a major driver right now of so much of what we see not only with probably my wife during turning the lights off of our house, all the ones that are, that are attached to uh smart plugs. Um, you know, it, there, there's a, there's a whole lot of ways that these, these tools are, are impacting what we're seeing in our news feeds and, you know, what, what makes headlines and things like that. And the other thing is an interesting article that Amy Webb, who is a futurist I learned about uh, a number of years ago. She does, I've never been to South by Southwest. I've been to South by Southwest EDU one time. She always does a pretty phenomenal uh, presentation about uh, trends and, and things. She has written, and this is published by the Stanford Cyber Policy Center, a document called A National Office for Strategic Foresight Anchored in Critical Science and Technology. And, and I have not read the entire thing, but I have scanned it. And one of the things I gather from this is, you know, she is, is directly addressing this issue of China's leadership relative to the United States in artificial intelligence and the long game that the Chinese government is playing, the kinds of investments they're making and the capacities that they have at a, at a national level to leverage resources to, to dominate you know, artificial intelligence and, and other kinds of technology. So pretty fascinating. And she's actually writing this in advance of the election, I think, wanting to uh, hopefully influence whoever might be taking office. We could have a change in uh, in, in leadership in the White House. Uh, it's possible. Um, but whoever that person might be for the next term, uh, saying that we need to be doing this in, in the United States. So I, I would... I think be pretty safe to say we are not talking about artificial intelligence enough in schools today for the level of impact it is already having on our lives and the huge impact that it's going to be having uh, in the in even the near term, much less the, the long term future. And that's it, I think, for yep, I think it is. I so. I think it is too. So Wes, why don't you share your geek of the week? Hey, I only have one. I'm going to actually do a shout out to my blog post. I've been trying to write pretty much every day. And so last night I, I went ahead and wrote a blog post uh, that I called lesson cast sharing a class recording with minimal steps. This past summer, our head of school asked me to tackle the challenge of how can our teachers most efficiently uh, and effectively share recordings of their in-class lessons with students um, when they're not able, especially to, you know, design something that's specific for them. And so there's a variety of workflows using Google Meets. You can use Zoom as well, uh, but using a laptop and also using an iPad. And all that is on our instructional support website for our school, which is licensed under Creative Commons. And you can find it at support.cassidy.org. And we'll have that link as well as others in the show notes. How about you, Dr. Neifer? What's your geek of the week? Um, I wasn't sure to share this as an article or maybe a challenge that, um, I am doing. There's a really great article from Popular Sciences from two years ago and it's framed in iPhones, but I think the message is important, which is basically delete all your apps. You should be very critically looking at the apps on your phone. And if you're not using them or if you can't articulate why you're using them, get rid of them. And there are a number of reasons for it. Security, power management on your phone, um, uh, uh, the making your phone run smooth. It can add cruft to the operating system if you have a bunch of apps installed. And so I, I, the, I actually know the number of apps installed on my phone because I, I, I gave a presentation earlier this year at the Idaho Educational Technology Association. Um, a little bit about uh, kind of minimalism and technology, and we we compared the number of apps, and I had the most number of apps in the room. Um, and so I know that I am over-installed, but I keep thinking to myself, there's no reason why I need the Alaska Air app right now. Not because I don't love Alaska Air, my favorite airline, but I'm not going to be traveling by air for the next year and a half, two years. So I'm gonna, I've been going through in the last two weeks and deleting five apps a day. Um, that are ones that I have not used, or if I don't know what it is, I automatically get rid of it. And I think it's an interesting exercise because, you know, obviously if I need to reinstall the app, I will. But in all cases, I've not uninstalled a single app yet that I've missed. 
and the web is much more robust. So it's not, it is yep. quite as important. And the, the whole thing with permission granting is pretty important. And I was talking to my kids about that this week. We have installed some different extensions. Uh, this week we've installed in my fifth grade Spanish class, the Google dictionary app, which is pretty amazing because on a number of sites where, you know, you can uh, click a word, it's not like in an image. Hey, it will immediately translate that word for you right, right into English. But we're talking about how many folks have, have, uh, you know, given this a rating, how many users and how important it is to be very careful. And once you have given that permission away, that's the interesting thing. It's not like you're generally, I don't think with these saying, Oh, I'll give you permission for 60 days or something like that. I mean, with logins and stuff like that, that's part of the reason why Google with two factor and stuff like that is going to come ask you, you know, after 30 days or whatever, sometimes to reauthenticate. But, um, with apps, it's, uh, it's not quite the same. So I think that is a good challenge to, consider. And uh, I will say on a personal app note, my sister shared an app. I don't often buy apps, um, but I, I had a little, you know, encounter with kidney stones here a couple of weeks ago. That was a lot of fun. So my latest app is called Waterminder, and it is to try to get you to hydrate during the day and regularly log the water you have drank and give you that feedback to yeah, to let you know exactly how much more you need. And I am not nearly drinking enough, according to the app, but I uh, am doing a little bit better in the last two days. So delete the apps you don't need and be open to new apps that might change your life, especially those that could make you more healthy and live longer. That's always a good thing. Absolutely. And by the way, how much water are they recommending on that app? It's like a, a hundred and three ounces. Oh wow, so, that's hardcore. Yeah. That's a lot. But I, but I aspirationally said I was a little bit more physically active than I am. So if I <laughs> if I go ahead and go down to sedentary, I think my my recommended will uh, will go down. So yeah, I am not you. It it turns you blue based on how much you've drank, and you know I'm only blue to the from feet to knees today. So thirty percent of my recommended quota which is pretty subjective. So I should probably ask a doctor to help do that. Um, trusting the app and its recommendations for drinking water is probably not a life-threatening, you know, medical decision, but that's a whole other layer of that in terms of what you're going to believe <laughs> and whether you're going to be, you know, uh, basing some of your health decisions on, you know, what an app developer has decided to you know, put into their algorithm. Well, Jason, where can folks find you when you're not here uh, sharing your good wisdom with the EdTech Situation Room community? Best place to find me is Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach. And you, sir? I am blogging almost every day at speedofcreativity.org, and I'm on Twitter at WFryer. And you can always go to westfryer.com slash after, which I uh, got that idea when I was in Egypt back in November of 2017. A speaker had this, like, you know, uh, link up there, other ways to learn with me. So I don't know if I've said that on the show before, but uh, there's a bunch of places where I will send uh, send information out. So Shout out to Peggy and uh, shout out to uh, all of those folks that are that have joined us live. And we do want to thank you for tuning in. You can always find both small 32 kilobit audio versions as well as smaller video versions on our website, uh, edtechsr.com. You can subscribe to us on YouTube. We are EdTechSR on Twitter and we're also on Facebook. So wherever finer podcasts are Located, hopefully you will be able to listen to the EdTech Situation Room. You could probably even tell your smart speaker to play the latest episode, as I am frequently doing. So we appreciate you guys tuning in. And until next time, stay savvy and stay safe. Good night.